Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Now we're at the end of Mark chapter 4. We've been working through this book of the Bible. We're plodding our way through the gospel of Mark. And if you've been following along, uh, my prayer is that we're encountering Jesus and what he did and how he taught and that it's encouraging us, it's helping us. And then we're going to turn to this most common story. This is going to be one that you've heard a, a thousand times. If you've grown up in church, this will be so familiar to you. But I do think that this text has for us an encouragement, uh, something that we actually desperately need right now. Because I don't know the specifics of what you're facing right now, but I do know some generalities. I need to know some generalities. There are forces that are beyond your control. I know that's true of you. That's true of me, and that's true of every member of the human race. These forces that are outside your control threaten your security. They threaten your comfort. They perhaps even threaten your life. I know that's true because you're human. I also know that you long for a deep rest in your soul. You long for a calm, an assurance, a confidence that can look forward to the forces that are outside your ability to control and you can rest assured that all is well. You long for that rest, that deep calm in your heart. And I also know that sometimes that's very hard to find, is it not? Sometimes it's really hard to find. Sometimes your heart swirls around like a whirlwind, filled with anxieties and fears and worries about what is to come, and you long to have a calm, a peace. This is the inescapable reality of being human. And what this text that we're about to look at aims to do in your life and in mine is to give you not a five-step process to escaping the fears of your life. Rather, it's going to do something that you might think is not exactly what you need this morning, but I assure you it is exactly what you need this morning. You might not expect that this is the way you want to be helped. You maybe ask for something more practical, but the text that we're going to look at this morning is eternally helpful because it's going to do something very simple. It's going to help you get a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to do. It's going to help you see him for who he actually is. Because I propose to you, getting my cards out on the table early, I propose to you that the issues behind the issues, if you peel the layers back and you look for the deepest reasons for our fears and our concerns and our aches, our worries and our anxieties, it would be that we have a diminished view of Christ, a small view of the Savior. And if we were to have a more robust, a more biblical view of Jesus Christ, that the fears and the concerns and the worries that so cripple us would vanish in his presence. Jesus Christ has been changing lives for centuries, inspiring the multitudes. James Allen Francis wrote it like this in a way that I couldn't explain, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, 
He, Jesus, was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. All the armies and all the navies and all the kings and all the governments to have ever been in existence have never affected the heart of men the way Jesus Christ has. And so I propose that to simply behold Jesus Christ is the greatest need of the moment and the greatest need of our lives. And so we want to look at the text and discover him. Would you look with me? Mark chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 35 and read to the end, verse 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him and with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want to walk through the text and start by looking at the setting. On that day, first words of this section, on that day, that points to the reality that this has all happened in a single day. That is likely all of chapter 4 has been a single full day of ministry. That he has begun teaching in chapter 4, verse 1, beside the sea. He's in a little boat because the crowd's so big, he's got to get in this boat off the land a little bit. The massive crowds surround him on land, and he preaches from the boat these parables and then in private, he starts talking to his own disciples, explaining the meaning of the parables. But all day, he's explaining to them, he's teaching the crowds, he's explaining to them. That's all of chapter 4 up to verse 34. And on that same day, it's time to move on. The evening has come. The sun is beginning to set at this point. There's no indication of any wind or rain or storm clouds. All we know is it's the end of the day, the sun is going down, and Jesus says, time's up, we've got to go to the other 
side. Let us go across to the other side. Jesus leads them into this. Mark that. It's not their sin that led them into the storm. It's not a mistake that leads them into the storm. It is Jesus saying, let's go. And Jesus will sometimes lead his disciples into storms. And so they go on into the boat. They've already kind of been in the boat all day. They leave the crowd. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. A a random detail that Mark includes, indicating again that this is eyewitness. Mark notes that there's other boats there kind of spotting the, the horizon as the lake sinks into the night. This is the setting. It's a normal evening. There's nothing to indicate anything uh, dangerous on the horizon. And that's exactly when the storm begins. The storm. We see in verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This is the Sea of Galilee. And as you do some study on this region, you realize that the Sea of Galilee is situated by some mountains so that there's kind of a topographical phenomenon that happens from time to time there on the lake. And it's because of the mountains and the situation of the lake and the warm water that comes from the lake and the cold water that comes, or the cold uh, air, I should say, comes from the mountains. And when these two fronts meet, it creates this massive amount of wind. And from time to time, it has been known on the Sea of Galilee that a windstorm can go from zero to 100 in a matter of minutes. In fact, to this day, modern fishermen have to beware when they go on to the lake that this might happen. It has happened. It's not that common, but from time to time, it happens. And when the great winds start rushing through the lake, angrily upsetting the water, the waves can become giant. They can become towering waves. And apparently, this is what's happening here. The setting starts calm on a nice evening, floating out into the middle of the lake, when all of a sudden the great windstorm starts gusting down this natural wind tunnel. We have something similar, the Cajon Pass. Almost any time you go up there, it's roaring winds. But this would have been something like that, but massive, massively worse at the time that the wind started raging. It would upset the waters to the degree that boats could be capsized, turned upside down. People would be drowned. So that's what's happening. The waves you see there in verse 37, they're breaking into the boat. The verb there, breaking, is a continuous verb. It connotes that this is not one wave. This is not a solitude wave. This is what's happening. Wave upon wave upon wave, relentlessly crashing the boat. This is a wave. These waves are big enough to go beyond the side, the edges of the boat, and crash right on into the boat. So it says there, the boat was already filling. You could imagine it. The water is being thrown around by these waves. It's breaking up. It might not be raining. We don't have any information on that. But the waves are probably crashing into the disciples. The wind is causing the rain to pelt against the disciples' faces. Their feet are sloshing around in the boat as they try to bail the water out. This storm is so raging that these disciples, and and keep in mind, many of these disciples are fishermen. They've been on this Sea of Galilee all their lives. And here they are encountering something so dramatic. You see it there. They cry out, we're perishing, teacher. We're, We're perishing. 
I want to zoom out a little bit and, and just consider what's happening here. Who created this lake? Who created the wind in the sea? God created all things. In Genesis 1, the creation is good. It's described as a beautiful world that God creates. It's very good. And all of it comes into existence because God calls it into existence. It's his, he owns it, and he rules over it. What happens when we get to Genesis chapter 3? There's sin in the world. And sin doesn't just affect the human race, it does. It infects all humanity. But also we learn from Genesis 3 that all creation is put under a curse, isn't it? So that there are thorns now. There are thistles now in the garden. But not only thorns and thistles, there are tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes that the world, now under a curse, as the Apostle Paul will go on to say, it groans. All creation groans. And so what is happening here is the disciples are in a Genesis 3 fallen, cursed world that they do not have authority to control. They do not have the power to bring it into submission. And you know what they're afraid of, right? What do they say? Teacher, we are perishing they're afraid of death. Death. Where's death come from? That's a curse as well, isn't it? That the fall of man introduced this thing called death into the world. And so these people, these disciples, are experiencing life in the fallen world. The Genesis 3 world. The world in which storms exist, tornadoes exist, earthquakes exist, cancer exists, floods and fires and famines, and disease, and viruses, accidents, malfunctions, mistakes, a cursed Genesis 3 world over which we have little control. There are things in this Genesis 3 world, as the disciples are experiencing dramatically right now, that threaten their lives. You find this to be true? Because what they're experiencing isn't so different from what we experience, is it? We live in a fallen, cursed world. We're living in a world that there are dangers beyond our control that threaten our very lives, don't we? Isn't control, our ability to control our lives, a little bit of an illusion that we make up to help us get through the day? And every once in a while, there are situations like storms or invisible viruses that make us remember the, the, the reality that we live in a world that we cannot control, that there are forces beyond our ability to bring into submission that threaten our very lives. Control is an illusion. Our ability to control the outcome of our days is an illusion. One author writes, you don't know if your heart will stop beating before you finish reading this page. That's a nice sentence to read as you sit down to enjoy a nice afternoon. He goes on, you don't know if some oncoming driver will swerve out of his lane and hit you head on in the next week. 
or if the food in the restaurant might have some deadly virus in it, or if a stroke may paralyze you before the week is out, or if some man with a rifle will shoot you at the shopping center. We, have, we are not God. We do not know about tomorrow. Friends, do you realize that we don't control our lives as much as we think we do? That we can do so much to try to keep ourselves safe. And we worry and we're anxious trying to control everything. And from time to time, there's a storm that tells us the storm's making a pretty good point here. We got to admit, the storm's making a point that from time to time, the storm's got to come in and tell us, hey, you don't actually control your life. You don't actually control these things. There is so much outside your control. There is so much you cannot control. And that's what the disciples are faced with, and this is what we must all face as well, is that there is a reality that, that is out there. This is the, these are the facts that we exist in a fallen world with threats beyond our control that have the power to end our lives. Morbid, we might say, but that's what's happening in the text. And they're face-to-face with reality. And we don't want to act as if that is not reality. Too often, especially in America, we run from any conversation about death. The Bible doesn't. And the Bible shows us reality. And reality is that there are storms. And Jesus sometimes leads us into them. And they are powerful beyond our control. And our lives can be threatened. Well, let's see what happens next. Let's look at the accusation. Look at verse 38. He was in, he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. There's some people that they get on an airplane and they're, they're, they're zonked out before the person even starts giving directions for how to do their seatbelt. I mean, their mouths are wide open and they're leaning on the guy next to them. We haven't even taken off yet. Meanwhile, I'm trying to find place for my knees without making an enemy of the guy in front of me. You guys know how it is. You see him on the plane, and they're already zonked out. I think Jesus, he's had a long day of ministry. He's taught all day. He goes into the boat. He finds the cushion, and he just lays down and goes to sleep. And it's the sleep of exhaustion, yes, but it's also the sleep of perfect trust. It's the sleep of the one who can trust in the Heavenly Father's care and lets no concern keep him up. It actually reminds us of the parable of the seed sower, doesn't it? In, in verses 26 to 29, he sows the seed and then he goes to sleep. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus just did. He taught on the parables and then he's done teaching and he goes and he falls asleep. He's resting now. Now, that's not what the disciples are doing. They're worried. And so they, verse 38, he's asleep, and they woke him up. I don't think this is a uh, very calm, measured. You know, would one of you go tap Jesus on the shoulder? There's a little bit of a storm out here, and we need some direction for what we're supposed to do. I don't think that's what it is. In fact, they woke him up. There's a plural there. All of them are in on this. All of them are concerned, and they rush in, And they bring him this question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care 
that we are perishing. Uh, I want you to notice something. This, this is posed as a question, but is this a question? This is an accusation posing as a question. This is an insult parading as a question. Mark this. They're not asking you know, a theological question about whether Jesus cares or doesn't care. They're accusing him of being careless in the very moment of their greatest need. I want to point out something, friends. The high-pressure situation is revealing their heart. The high-pressure of the storm is revealing something that's going on deep inside. Jesus, why aren't you caring for us right now? You don't care about us, do you? See, as soon as it gets hard, Jesus, you go to sleep, don't you? That's what's going on. I want to read this a little bit like a biblical counselor. Some of you have aspirations to be able to help people with the Word of God and guide them and, and, and get to the, the heart issues that come up. And so if we were to just kind of press pause to this situation and enter in, and let's just imagine for a moment we could start talking to these disciples. You could ask them, well, what's going on? What do they say? Well, there's a storm. There's a storm. And you would recognize, well, that's the circumstances that you are finding yourself in, but that's not the issue. Let's, let's peel a layer back a little bit. Well, what's the storm doing to you? How's, how are you responding to the storm? And what do they say? Well, we're afraid. We're afraid that we might die. We're, we're worried that this ship gets capsized and we go down and we drown. That's what we're worried about. Well, let's go a little deeper. Let's keep peeling. We've got to get to the heart of this issue. It, it's not just fear, right? That fear's got to come from somewhere, right? That's what a good biblical counselor does. We're peeling away. We want to get right to the heart and identify why they are responding the way they're responding. Oh, it's fear. Well, where's the fear come from? You see how Jesus identifies it there in verse 40? Where's it come from? Have you still no faith? Oh, there it is. They are afraid because they do not have faith, the kind of faith they ought to have in Jesus. There's a faithlessness that is there in the heart of the disciples here that when the storm rages, they do not look to God. They do not look to Christ in faith, with confidence and security. Rather, they respond with fear. Ah, is that the hard issue? There's another layer. I want you to see this. Go back to their question. What's behind the faithlessness? Part of the reason we're doing this right now is because in understanding these questions, you can understand your own heart. What's behind their faithlessness? Why are they so afraid? You can see it in the question they ask, the accusation they lodge at Jesus. Teacher, do you not care? Why are they afraid? It's because they don't trust. They don't have faith. Well, why don't they have faith? They've gotten the heart of Christ wrong. See that? Do you care? That is a question that aims right at the heart of Jesus. 
That is the questioning of the heart of the Savior. That's what they're doing. Jesus, in our storm, do you care? They're actually having the gall to ask the Savior of the world if he loves them enough in the storm. Don't you care? You see, there are layers here, and we can all peel them back, and we can see these things in our own hearts. The pressure of the moment reveals, yes, they're afraid, but where does the fear come from? It comes from a faithlessness, but where does the faithlessness come from? It comes from a doubt of the care of Jesus, a disbelief that he could love us so perfectly well. Friends, this is our own heart's tendency, isn't it? Don't think for a second otherwise. The care of Christ is so wonderful and perfect and self-giving and generous. And one of our most fatal flaws as, hum as human beings is that we continually think of Jesus as unconcerned, harsh, stingy, aloof, distant, and the question that the disciples ask is a question we've all asked, isn't it? Jesus, don't you care about my hard situation? Dane Ortland, in his fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, some of you on the, in the Monday night group are reading through it, and I'd recommend it to you. The subtitle of the book is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And he says this, Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that, given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Friends, this is a devilish lie. This is the lie of the garden. This smells like the poisonous question of the serpent. When he causes them to question the goodness of God, all of us have been infected by this poison. It is there in every one of our hearts, deep down, is this propensity of fallen humanity to question the most generous, most gracious Savior, to ask if he cares. And as Ortland says, we are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. We, we just can't believe he could be so loving. We just can't possibly believe he would be so merciful. We can't believe that if there's a storm, he still loves us in the storm. And so we're making up all these reasons. Well, he must not love me very much. Well, he might not be paying attention to me now. Oh, my life's too hard. It must be that Jesus turned his back. It must be that he's tired of me. It must be that I've sinned my way out of his love. I've done too many bad things, and now he's just had enough. Church, this is a devilish doubt. <laughs> the Lord of love doesn't care? What? The King of mercy doesn't have compassion on you? What? Throw that lie back to the pit of hell where it came and believe afresh that that's not what Jesus is like. He is a 
flowing fountain, ever flowing fountain of love and compassion and mercy and care. And so here's what we're going to do for the rest of this morning. We're going to behold Christ. We're just going to look at him from this text. Use this text as a vista to get a panorama of the glories of Christ. Let's do that, all right? That's what we need this morning. Let's start with this. Let's look at his compassion. Let's look at his compassion. First of all, the disciples are asking him, uh, don't you care that we are perishing? Uh, what, what a question. And we might respond to the, the disciples, you know, hey, ask a question of Jesus, just not that one. Any question, but not that one. Think about it, disciples. Why is he in the boat? And why are you in the boat with him? It's because he loved you and he called you to himself and he wants you to be with him. Why is he in the storm? It's because he wanted to enter this cursed world that he could redeem it. Friends, why does he eventually then go to the cross? Is it not because his heart burns with love for his people that he would go to the cross to pay the penalty for their sins? so that they won't have to suffer for them the sins that they deserve to pay for. Christ says, I will pay for them on the cross. Is it not because he has come to save? Friends, think about the matchless, boundless, generous, free-flowing, never-ceasing love of Jesus. That's why he's there. And then look, verse 39. This one is kind of comical to me. When you think about what's happening, these frenzied disciples they say he awoke. They, they've been jostling Jesus. They've been trying to wake him up. And it says he awoke and he rebuked. Now, if, I, if this were me, who, who am I going to rebuke? I'm rebuking the disciples for waking me up. I don't know if they're, this is, this is when the inner grizzly bear comes out. Well, who woke me up? Why? I'm asleep. I had a long day of ministry. And, and here the disciples jostle him awake and he rises and rebukes the wind, and, and said to the sea, peace, be still. What compassion. He doesn't say, get over it, you'll be just fine, we're going to make it. He doesn't say, come on, you got to learn a lesson through this. Jesus is by nature tender. Jesus is by nature merciful with those who are afraid. It doesn't mean that he'll remove every storm in your life, but we do see that the inner impulse of his heart is to relieve the suffering of his beloved. In fact, I think this storm is a little bit of a microcosm of the whole story of redemption. Think about it. The whole fallen world is a raging storm which threatens our death. All humanity is in sin and under judgment, about to be swallowed up in death. And all the faithless cry of humanity is this, God doesn't care about me. But Jesus enters the storm of this fallen world, doesn't he? And he doesn't stop the storm by just speaking. No, Jesus lays down his life. He goes to the cross. Why? To satisfy the just wrath of God against sinners. So that the wrath of God that we deserved is poured out on him. So that anyone who is a guilty sinner can look to Jesus Christ by faith. And the moment they trust in him, they are forgiven. 
their sins are put on Jesus on the cross. And the wrath of God that was aimed at you falls on him. You are freed. And Jesus conquers death and rises from the dead. And he's alive to save everyone who comes to him. And one day he will bring a great calm to the whole world as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. How could we say that he's not a savior of compassion and love? How could we question whether or not he cares? Well, let's also look at his power. It's not just that he's compassionate. Look at his power. And that's, I think, the highlighted, what's highlighted here. What does he do? He arises. He rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I grew up every summer going to Lake Mead uh, for some water skiing. And if you wanted the best water, you'd have to get up early before all the other boats are out and all the other jet skis and before the winds picked up and you would get out there and you'd look at the lake and it was just glass, just, just as smooth as you could imagine. It was a beautiful thing. You'd get up and just watch. There's no waves and that was the kind of water you wanted. And that's what comes to mind when it's saying that Jesus spoke and he said, peace be still. Yes, the wind ceased. But it also uses this word that actually refers to bodies of water. There was a great calm. I want you to notice something here. It's not just the wind stopped, and then 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, eventually the waves stopped sloshing around, uh, and eventually it slowed down, and eventually there's a calm. That's not what it says. The water obeyed, too. The wind obeyed, and the water obeyed. It's something that's obviously supernatural. He says, peace be still, instantly Wind stops, water like glass. Like glass. The word unruff or the word uh, the great, great calm could be translated unruffled, like a freshly pressed, well ironed shirt. There's not a single ripple on the whole lake. Instantaneously, Jesus commands the H2O to stop raging, and it does. He speaks to the wind. And it stops blowing. Friends, this is great, isn't it? This is our Savior. Reflect on that. Our Savior owns this creation. He made it. It's His. It recognizes His voice. It, it hears His voice and it obeys. This is Jesus' creation. The mountain behind me is His mountain. And that's His tree. And this is His wind. And that's His Son. And what Jesus tells these things to do, they do without complaint. Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9, listen to this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The whole universe is the temple of the living God. And every single molecule that exists it obeys his voice. 
Every tree that falls, every deer that gives birth, every shooting star is at the command of King Jesus. All of it. It's his wind. It's his water. It recognizes the voice of his master. And so when he tells it to stop, it stops instantly. Every storm obeys its maker. That's why, G, that's why Hebrews says of Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Consider this, church. Jesus has all power. Every ounce of power, every ounce of energy in the entire universe is Jesus' energy on loan. He has given it to some things for a season, but if he were to say so, that thing would go out of existence. It's his power in the supernova. It's he who powers the blazing sun. It's his power that causes your heart to beat this morning. It's his power behind your lungs. Everything else is contingent upon him. He is contingent upon nothing. If he went out of existence, everything else would cease to exist. But he will never go out of existence. Everything is dependent upon him. Let me ask you this. What if Jesus was all power but not compassionate? He'd be no better than the storm that the disciples are afraid of, right? But isn't it amazing? And isn't it cause for humble worship filled with awe that our Savior is both infinitely powerful and immeasurably compassionate. He uses his infinite, almighty power for the purposes of his love and compassion and grace to those who do not deserve it. This is our Savior. Yes, he's omnipotent, and yes, he is compassionate, and his power is used to bless his people. I want to now look at this concern of Jesus. We looked at his compassion. We looked at his power. Now we're looking at his concern. And I want to look at his concern by looking at the questions he is asking these disciples. Verse 40. He said to them, why are you afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus' concern is not that they have an easy life. Oh, sorry, guys, I didn't realize that storm got a little bit out of hand. Uh, it needs to be a little easier for you. Let me uh, do something about that. No. Why are you afraid? If you recall, you remember at the beginning of the section, he said they're going to get across the lake. They're going to get across the lake. It might be a storm, but they're going to get across the lake. Why are you afraid, Jesus says? Have you no faith? Let me encourage you, church, memorize those two questions that Jesus asked and bring them up every time you begin to sink into that dark pit of fear. Ask yourself, let Jesus speak to you in those moments. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? I ask you, because I know there are those of you out there that are af afraid. You are concerned. You are anxious. You struggle with worry. And let the words of Christ touch you this morning. 
Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? See, this faithlessness causes fear. And the concern of Jesus is not that life is easy. Follow this. The concern of Jesus is that you would have such a strong faith, such a confident assurance of who he is and what he has said he will do, that you live life with security, confidence, boldness, fearlessness. Like the Proverbs 31 woman, you laugh at the days to come. You don't fret about the future. Because you know your Jesus is omnipotent and he's compassionate and he's over the future and he loves you and he will take care of all things. Why are you so afraid? I mean, it might be a helpful exercise to compile the list. Why don't you compile the list? Get down on paper all the reasons for fear. Your finances are tight. Your relationships are hard. Your kids are out of control. Your job is on the line. Your health is compromised. There's a virus out there. There's a government encroaching upon our freedoms. How much longer before Christians are persecuted? And hear this, Jesus says to you, why are you afraid? (laughs) King Jesus, Lord of all, the Lord of love and compassion says to his church, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Don't you trust me? Don't you trust my heart? He's good. Let me remind you, we have no right to accuse him of ever doing anything wrong to us. I miss R.C. Sproul. Some of you have read his books or heard him teach. One of my favorite teachers, a great theologian who died a few years back. I was re-watching a question and answer when he was on a panel with a bunch of other theologians and people from the audience could write in questions and this particular question he says this it's a kind of a tragic question he says I am trying to reconcile the death of my adult son whom I believe not to be saved with my Christian faith how do I deal with my anger toward God and this long, dark night of the soul. This man's experiencing something of the storm, isn't he? Something of the curse of this fallen world. And he confesses in his question, he's, he's angry with God. Really, the heart of his question is the same as the heart of the disciples. Don't, doesn't God care about my suffering right now? Does he not know what I'm going through? I'm angry with him because it seems like he doesn't care. And Sproul responds in, I think, a way that would surprise most of us. How do you respond to this man's question? He says, repent. Repent in dust and ashes. Crawl over glass in your repentance if you're angry at God. There has never been anything that's happened to you in your whole life, including this great tragedy and most painful experience that could ever possibly justify being angry at God. There are 10 million reasons why he should be angry at you. God does not owe us a life without pain, a life without tragedy. He's given us a life of grace and a promise of eternal felicity 
And any being who does that for us 100% graciously can never righteously be the object of our anger, only of our gratitude. It is devastatingly harmful for someone to be angry at God, no matter what. See, Jesus' concern is that we would come to have this deep-seated trust in Him. So deep that we could go through the most devastating realities this cursed world can throw at us. And we don't understand all the reasons why. We won't have all the answers. But we fall on our faces before the Lord of hosts and we say, you're God. I trust you. I know you care. I know you're in control. I know you're sovereign in power and great in love and mercy. And I don't understand all that's happening, but I will trust you. I will not question whether you care about me. I know you do. But Jesus' concern is that we all grow in our faith because we have a correct view of who he is, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign one over all creation, and he also is the compassionate one, the Lord of love. And though we will not have all the answers, we trust him, repenting of any idea that creeps into our minds that he would ever do anything bad to his children. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. See the boats in the storm, that's, that's scary. You want to know what's more scary? The Lord of all creation who calms the storm right there in the boat next to you. They're with great fear now. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You can almost hear it, church. You can almost hear the small views of Jesus collapsing in their minds. Who then is this? Who he, we thought he was, he is not. Because this man controls his, this creation. The storm was scary, but they're realizing something else. Their hands are actually not, or their lives are not actually in the hands of the storm. Their lives are in the hands of the omnipotent Christ. We need to hear this, everyone here. Your life is upheld by the sovereign Christ, the hands of Jesus. He rules every storm, every beat of your heart, every breath in your lungs is a gift from him. You cannot outrun him, you cannot avoid him, and you must not ignore him. And the scriptures say that you will meet him on judgment day. If you fall on your knees before him, trusting that he is kind and gracious and compassionate, and you ask him for salvation, he will give it freely to you without cost. You need not be good, you just need to know that you need him. You come to him, he will save you and forgive you, and on judgment day, you need not fear any condemnation. And church, if you have already come to King Jesus, can you worship him afresh this morning because of his power and his compassion? And can you reaffirm your trust in who he is? And can, you, can we together commit 
to never question whether or not he cares, but to together reaffirm the reality that he does love us perfectly. And though we might not understand what he's doing, he is Lord of the storm, he is Lord of our lives, and he's the Lord of love, and he will lead us through whatever he takes us through for his own purposes, for his own glory. Let's pray. Lord, obliterate every small idea of Jesus. Destroy every questioning heart and replace it with one that trusts. Forgive us for the moments we've doubted you. Forgive us for the questions we've asked that are more like accusations. And cause us to repent and to remember that you should never be the object of our anger, but only of our gratitude. That even if there's a storm, that we should trust you with all our might and be confident and secure in your promises. Oh, Lord, this does not come naturally to us. By your Spirit, cause it to rise up in us this faith and confidence in who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.